Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Brainstorm, ponder, preordain, and many others, battling head-to-head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToAMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of The Eternal Glory Podcast. The old sideboard juke. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Coble, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Bryant Cook of the Epic Storm. All right. You want to know how we're doing in our lives? That's what the pre-show is for. We're going to jump right into the theory tonight. Hold up. Let me thank our new Patreon. Uh, we got Connor McElhinney. In the Patreon now, who is our newest member to hear our 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 pre-show got a little little deep, maybe even bordering on like a little aggressive this time. Uh, there were some hot takes from at least two of our three uh, co-hosts here, and uh, real thoughts of what we really think about some th- certain things in the certain <laughs> decks and certain things that are going on in the in the world. It's a good it's a, one. It's a good time. Get in there. All right, so. This episode is actually inspired by a specific deck list. So recently, we saw a Doomsday list doing extremely well in Legacy, which had Shouldred the Apocalypse. That is the new 4-mana Black Shouldred card that deals damage to people for drawing cards. Whoa, that's not true. Why don't we read what the card does, Phil? Fine, we can read the full text of the card. Dealing damage and loss of life are not the same thing. And I would like to just, you know, really make that point known as the person that plays cards that cause people to lose life. Not the same. All right, fine. Full text. Shouldered the Apocalypse, two colorless, two black, four, five. Legendary creature, Phyrexian Praetor with Death Touch. Whenever you draw a card, you gain two life. Whenever an opponent draws a card, they lose two life. And flavor text, of course, is Gix failed. I shall not. I thought the flavor text was death touch. Uh, that's other flavor text. I love that the your your Shouldred voice is deeper than your normal deep man voice. <laughs> and Shouldred is, I, I guess I don't really know how uh, gender and sexuality fluctuate among Phyrexians because they're mostly robots, but female presenting Praetor. I don't know. All right. Look, I don't. I don't know exactly what a Phyrexian Dreadnought sounds like, and I don't know how those two voices merge, but I don't know. It felt right. All right. Fair enough. Praetors can sound like whatever you want in your in your dreams until Magic the Gathering gives us the TV show we need. Come on, Netflix. Pick it up. Let us hear Shoulders I would like to hear voice. Phil's falsetto, just real high. No- like I think that would be nice. Phil, can you read it again? Wait, wait. What if Shouldred is like a Southern grandma? I do declare you lose to life. I think that's what she sounds like. Like picture her in like a a hat that they wear at the Kentucky Derby. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, that's better than Phil's thing. Let's move on. Anyway, <laughs> we we're talking about uh, how Max Dorshin won the Legacy Showcase. No small feat. That is the best players on Magic Online doing their best. And Max went in with Turbo Doomsday. And just this isn't the only thing we're talking about. We're using it as a setting point for our conversation. But basically... Max's build played four personal tutors and two Cabal Rituals on top of the four Dark Rituals, where the bet was, I'm going to go faster than everyone game one, and then if they can hang game two, I'm just going to be a shoulder deck. And your Dark Rituals, your Cabal Rituals, your Lotus Petals get shouldered out faster, and your same Thought Seizes, Duresses, and Force of Wills that protect your Doomsday game one protect your shoulder game two. Doomsday specifically is a deck that removal doesn't do anything against. Like even the Epic Storm or Show and Tell or Reanimator, like maybe you keep your prismatic endings in or your one or two swords of plowshares in case like a Grizzlebrand or Archon sneaks through your defenses. 
Doomsday has nothing to target with removal. And especially like the blue black turbo version, if you see white mana, maybe you respect Monastery Mentor game too. Like that's a juke we know about already, but straight up blue black turbo and a tight little package of the bug mother shouldered. You're not leaving in plows for that. And the card is not really beatable if you can't remove it. Really smart decision there. And that is what we're talking about. I think it's interesting when you look at how Doomsday's evolved over the last six to eight months, where part of addressing the Delver issue for that deck was uh, members of the community decided that, hey, basic lands are good. Maybe we shouldn't just be playing five copies of Underground Sea. Let's cut the Watery Grave. Let's add in one of each basic. And if we're going to do that, maybe we should run a couple copies of Cabal Ritual. And then Shieldred gave them an additional payoff other than Doomsday that really allowed them to abuse that extra mana. So it just makes sense. That's something that fits so nicely into the game plan worked, right? Yeah, and the thing about Shouldred that I didn't really think about at first, but I listened uh, Everyday Eternal, our buddies over there uh, on the Everyday Eternal podcast had Max on, and they really dug into his tournament. And as a control deck, I frequently do something like leave one Swords to Plowshares in the deck just in case my opponent has a juke. I can dig for it. You can't dig with Shouldred in play. Ponder into Brainstorm into another Ponder trying to find my one Swords of Plowshares. I just took 12 on my turn. Like, draw for turn, cast Ponder, cast Brainstorm, cast Ponder again. I'm dead. It's it's like the perfect juke because it stops control decks from also looking for their one out if they even left one in. So this is also so much of a swing in life total in a single cycle. So assuming no spells are played... Your opponent loses two when they draw the card on their turn. You gain two when you draw the card on your turn, and then you attack for four. So assuming nothing else has happened in one turn cycle, this impacts cumulative life totals by eight points, and that scales up with every cantrip that happens. Yeah, Uh, another thing that was said on Everyday Eternal was compare Shouldred plus Brainstorm to Murktide Regent. If you have Shouldred, you draw for turn, plus two, you cast Brainstorm, plus another six, that's eight. You've fogged a maximum size Murktide Regent, and if your opponent ever casts a Brainstorm, they draw for turn, lose two, cast Brainstorm, lose another six, they've taken a hit from a full-size Murktide Regent. That's so messed up when you just compare it to this card that many people want banned, and Shouldred is like just generating that out of normal cards while also being a 4-5 body in play. Yeah, Shouldred trades very well with most things in the format there's very few things that just casually have five power like three is super common with like delvers dragon rage channelers um elvish reclaimers that sort of stuff it's hard for something to get to five power and since shouldered has death touch you can trade with both creatures that your opponent throws in front of the uh the giant black bus and if you have something like a sudden edict combat's scary right so I feel this devolving into a Shouldred love letter, which it's not. We are talking about sideboard jokes. Let's get back to that. Shouldred makes a lot of sense in a deck like Doomsday, where your opponent cannot board out their removal fast enough. Uh, I'll, I've died to Doomsday many times with just sorts of plowshares, prismatic ending in my hand, and can't even wait to turn those into literally anything. I'll board in something like, uh, I, I don't know, like some even unplayable card in the matchup. I would board in like energy flux just to pitch it to force over keeping a prismatic ending in my deck against doomsday in the past. That is the perfect spot to walk through that gap. All right. So let's kind of start from the the very beginning. When we say like a sideboard juke, what sort of thing are we referring to? Cause shouldered obviously is one, but like definitionally, like what are we, what are we talking about? We started this conversation off air because uh, Bryant said something and I was like wait is that a juke and and then we were like pause pause save this for the air I consider a juke when your plan is different after sideboard like, uh, your opponent is expecting you to do one thing and you do something different a- and I consider it to be like at the fundamental level where like your doomsday deck now has shouldered or your doomsday deck now has monastery mentor or your uh, sneak and show deck has Jace the Mind Sculptor or uh, something like that. That's kind of what I'm picturing. But then Bryant said something interesting about uh, Zant- considering Xanted Swarm a juke out of combo decks, where I think that's like 
a sideboard level system where like it, maybe it is a juke because we don't really expect you to have creatures, but then you do. But that creature is used to the end of storming out. So, Brian, what do you think? Well, I reference Zanid Swarm as a traditional juke because historically what happens is control decks go, hey, Swords of Plowshares is bad against Storm. Why don't we uh, board out Swords? And then you bring in Zanid Swarm that are left without removal. It dodges Force and Negation. You attack and then you get to do your thing. It's more of a sidestep than a full juke. I would agree that a juke in my mind usually changes the deck at a fundamental level. So for example, I played Lotus Breach last week on the Epic Storm YouTube channel where I boarded into Death Shadow. I've already been playing Thoughtseize and Street Wraith in the deck. A listener was like, why don't you try out Shadow on the board? That's a juke because it's entirely different, doesn't use the graveyard, entirely different game plan. But I guess I'll just talk about it now if it's okay with the two of you. Your juke needs to be different enough that the removal spells being boarded out or cards being boarded out don't impact the juke at all, which is why Shield Dread works. Um, you just can't have, if your main plan loses the Lightning Bolt, don't board in a plan that loses the Lightning Bolt, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I I guess like sidestep to juke on the spectrum, we could call it like a mini juke or Maybe a juke is a big sidestep. I don't know. I, I think we're in the same ballpark here. It was just interesting to me that uh, Xanted Swarm was in your, your juke conversation at all, but I think I agree with it now that it's been said out loud. So mini jukes versus fundamental plan changes, uh, also, aka transformational sideboards. Uh, I guess that's the extreme end of a juke, where now your deck is just different, where... I guess we can keep referencing Doomsday because they've been doing a lot of cool stuff trying to fix the Delver matchup for the last couple of years. And the the versions that don't even have Doomsday in the deck at all, the Esper ones that they kind of like have Baleful Strix in the main deck anyway. It's just like a way to buy time and set up their Doomsday. And then they board in just three or four Monastery Mentors and they already play Cavern in game one to get their Oracle through. And now you can Cavern on Human and get your Monk to resolve and also cast like Snapcaster Mage or whatever, and you're just a, a tempo mentor deck. I would consider that a transformational sideboard, which is the extreme end of the juke spectrum. And normally transformational sideboards are only used in extreme cases. Like uh, generally just having a sideboard and executing on a plan is better and making small adjustments. But if you if there's actually a giant problem, a well-represented deck that you're not going to beat without a transformation, that's usually where you want to go that deep. So, for example, some of the, at this point, real old versions of decks like Oops All Spells would be an entirely graveyard-focused deck on in game one and then transform into a goblin Charbelcher deck for the post-sideboard games because all the rituals and fast mana worked out the same way. That's not usually true anymore because, like, the cards they can play, like Force of Vigor, have just gotten so much better. There's not really as strong of a need to do that anymore. But that was an example of a somewhat common instance of a transformational sideboard. As people who do donation decks, people love the full transformational sideboard, and I'm sure the two of you have received dozens and dozens of them. One thing that always strikes me odd is sometimes I think people love the idea so much they forget that they have to do something unique. I've definitely received Tinfin's variants that poured into another graveyard thing. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. So once again, I know that I sound like a broken record. Make sure that it's different. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted to talk about. So I've played so many of these mono black decks, and not too long ago, I played a mono black painter deck that was really good. But its sideboard juke was supposed to be Leyline and Helm of Obedience combo. But both of those things were vulnerable to artifact hate like Nullrod and Collector Oof. So I either had one or both of those combos in and they were stopped by the same hate. So while those were different strategies and they did attack from slightly different angles, it wasn't actually a successful sideboard juke because the same sort of hate stopped both of them. I've definitely never lost to a collector roof in my life. Not even once. Couldn't be you. Uh, speaking of a, a successful version of that, I recently on camera got completely clowned. I was playing some sort of deck that used my graveyard a little bit, not like reanimator, but you know something. Maybe it was an Euro deck that seems on brand for me. And my Storm opponent had a turn zero ley line against me. And I was like, oh, that's fine. That That's kind of like I Raven Scrime them. I barely care about that. That's not really part of my plan anyway. And I just 
plotted forward with my control game. They went for like a storm attempt. I used my resources to stop it. And then when I had lethal on board, they like went for a YOLO brainstorm with two cards in their hand and then went dark ritual, helm of obedience, blast you out of storm. I was not ready. I, I guess like if you're expecting null rod, that could walk into the same thing where like if I had a null rod, I would definitely bring it again against storm. But Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, Mindbreak Trap, uh, any of that sort of thing. Uh, deafening Silence. Uh, none of those things work against a, a Leyline Helm Juke out of Ad Nauseum Tendrils. God, what? It was Ad Nauseum? Ad Nauseum with probably well, eight? Well, I'm sure they took the, the Ad Nauseums out when they brought in their four mana spells. But uh, yeah, it, it was like it was not the Epic Storm. It was a very like Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual centric Storm deck in game one. And then game three was it eggy pop i i did upload eggy pop recently i wonder if they were just bringing back the old uh original storm deck uh un unclear i i feel like game one looked like very standard ad nauseum and then game two also looked like standard ad nauseum except they lost and then game three looked real weird and let me tell you my opponent handled it beautifully in the chat just spamming uh the worst bm imaginable just like ha, 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 like all caps like xd 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 just like ding 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 like filling up the chat box i was like okay you earned that <laughs> <laughs> i i was pretty sure i could not lose that game from my position and that's the point of the juke like based on what i had in my hand what i had on board the hate i had available whatever i was not losing to a storm line from the resources they had but turns out they only needed one card in hand and it was the helm why don't we talk? Why don't we break this down just a little bit further? So, Brian, had you realized what they were up to, you could have prepared for this, right? Yes. Okay. Well, to bring it back to current legacy, Shield Red popped up a lot this past weekend at the Legacy Pit Open. It, it's one week old technology. It's likely still to work. Three weeks out, do you think Shield Red out of Doomsday is going to be as effective when the rest of the metagame knows about it? I think that. In this specific case, the juke is so strong that it's likely to keep working because you don't, it's not a transformational sideboard. You still have your doomsday combo in the deck, even when you also have Shouldred, where if you duress your opponent and see like dress down and sword supply shares, like, okay, I'll take the dress down and doomsday you nice sword supply shares dummy, or just take the sword supply shares. How many of those do you think they actually left in here? Shouldred. And it just seems like a capable enough juke that it's going to people are not going to be like totally clowned by it. But I've been thinking about it since I saw the list as a, a resident control wizard. It's like, what am I going to do? Prioritize hands that have Caracas in them or, or like <laughs> what's the plan? Because leaving in one sword to plowshares in case they go for Shouldred when they still have five duress effects and four to eight force effects in their deck. And I can't cantrip for it once the thing resolves. I, I think I just have to like try to execute my game and beat Doomsday and then hope I can wade through Shouldred, like outmuscle it with an Uro or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, like, I'm worried about it. It'll be worse. Like, it'll at least be on the radar. But uh, I, I think if anything, it'll incentivize questionable sideboarding and just increase variance in, in how the games can go. Uh, but... Yeah, I'm worried about that. Uh, compared to something else like the the Monastery Mentor Juke out of the Esper Doomsday, like I'm bringing in my Plague Engineers. I'm going ham on that one uh, versus Monastery Mentor. Because uh, they cut actually do cut their Doomsdays when they go for that plan. And then you're on a level game of are they bringing in Mentors or are they staying Doomsday? Whereas the Shouldred Juke, they're still both. I've been thinking a lot about it and... The the shield or juke is primarily there for is it Delver or blue red Delver whatever you'd like to call it. A lot of those decks right now are running on holy heat. How big of a cost is it for a deck that plays expressive iteration, a card that does not draw cards but digs very very well for unholy heat? If those players start to leave an unholy heat, how big is is that as a cost? I know that unholy heat does nothing to the rest of the deck, so that's. Sort of a problem if you get glutted on Unholy Heats. That said, it's a one-mana removal spell that you invested a lot of resources into casting Shield Dread. So that's just something I've been weighing back and forth is, will this plan work in two weeks once people start to leave an Unholy Heats? Yeah, and and then it's the flip side of, uh, you know, nice Unholy Heat in your hand. 
doomsday you? Or how are you getting delirium without drawing a bunch of cards? Like you got to get an instant sorcery and artifact into your graveyard unless Dragon's Raid Channeler is just milling them all there off of sorceries that don't actually draw cards like ponder building building delirium brainstorm building delirium like take eight gg more generally though i do agree with bryant's point um jukes are often most effective when you are at the cutting edge of the technology oftentimes because like you or your you know your play group the people that you're testing with have designed the juke so like the first time somebody goes like dark ritual shouldered on turn two out of doomsday, the other person is just caught totally with their pants down. They have no idea it's coming. And as time goes on and you've seen this, you know, the play pattern is coming. It becomes easier to address, even though in this specific instance, I, I do think the juke is strong. I do think it will continue to work. But every time you create that sideboarding awkwardness for your opponent, especially with the less experienced players who might not actually like sit down and like write a sideboard guide before an event, they might not know how to deal with that at the time and gives you a huge advantage. I remember in the early days of my tracking, my Epic storm results, I averaged, this was still during like the death ray era, a pretty, I don't below average win percentage for me, at least it was like 56, 58 win percentage. And AJ Kerrigan came to me with this quadruple empty the Warrens four probe fork ball therapy plan. And I was like, I don't know, AJ, we're the ad nauseum deck. And then I played it and I started tracking my results and I was at like 82 win percentage over 90 something matches. And I was like, AJ, I'm never going to lose again. You found the, the greatest tech of all time. Sure enough, two weeks later, people realized that they just needed to board in a couple sweepers against me. And I was back down to barely above where I was before, but that high and low, uh, it hurts. Yeah. I remember that era and playing against the Epic storm was like, I don't really need to stop tendrils most of the time. Like I need electricries and whatever, uh, or engineered explosives way more than I need fluster storm against this particular deck. Uh, and, then there was sort of an evolution uh, where like a year or two ago, probably two years ago at this point, what is time anymore? You and I did a, a co-stream together where you taught me how to play the Epic Storm. And I was surprised to learn from the driver's seat that it's not the turn one Black Belcher deck it used to be. It's it's very much a build your resources, take your time kind of situation where electricery doesn't do anything or like very little like. Does every build even have empty in it? You probably keep one around, right? Or have yeah, you cut it? Yeah, it had to be Summer somehow. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thought so. Uh, but but yeah, those like three empties main plus the one in the board or even just going all four main and just 10 goblins bet every turn one. Uh, that, that era, I recall it. I also remember in that era, Caleb Shearer on Ad Nauseam having this like three or four tendrils version where he was just like, okay to set up like a tendrils you for eight three turns later tendrils you for eight kind of game plan post board against certain types of hate and that that was a pretty cool thing too when people weren't ready for it the old grinding station variants they did not have the card grinding station in them i would just like to point that out it's just legacy players are terrible with naming decks and that's what they wanted to call it right grinding station combo which is a black tendrils deck that does not involve grinding station <laughs> got it <laughs> Oh, I love right, Legacy. So, while we're talking about jukes here, in constructing your juke, make sure you are thinking about not your opponent's game one deck, but also their game two and game three deck, right? So, for example, like let's say you're playing something like Reanimator. You know your opponent's going to bring in something like a Leyline or a Graph Digger's Cage. So, a normal sideboard answer to that is something like a Serenity that just destroys that stuff. Whereas your juke is, hey, I'm going to play show and tell and just completely ignore the axis of hate that you are bringing in. And that just allows me to cheat my creature into play. It ignores the hate cards that you are going to bring in, and I'm good to go. So sometimes it's not about making your opponent leave in the bad cards that are in their deck in game one. It can also be invalidating their post-sideboard approach. Yeah, the show and tell is a good one because that is a pretty standard thing that 
reanimator does. And we're in a format of main deck pyroblast and boarding in blue cards in a format of main deck pyroblast. You better do a good job selling your opponent that you're not a blue deck in game one, which reanimator is great at doing really clever, like double juke of like, here's, here's a philosophical question is main deck pyroblast a juke. Like that's not like a normal way to build a deck. And it, it's like a, a proactive, uh, it, no, it's not a juke. It's just like probably just tech. I don't know, but how about, how about we use the word hedging? It's like hedging it's against hedge, the yeah. expected metagame. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a hedge and being a non blue deck game one and then being a blue deck game two after the pyroblaster gone pretty clever, but show and tell does still get got by like fluster storm spell pierce force of will the same way that the reanimator game one plan does. So there is an axis of relevance, but you still have your discard spells as reanimator. As long as you can ignore your graveyard spells, uh, you, you I would still consider that a, a juke. I was talking to someone over the weekend and they mentioned to me that the reanimator player revealed an underground scene game once they knew to keep in pyroblast for the post board games. Yep. And that's something you have to be aware of. Like, hey, you see underground Seattle reanimator. You have to know that show and tell is coming. But I'm glad that Phil mentioned reanimator because I do think we were talking about Xanded Swarm earlier. And if that's a juke. Out of Reanimator, I think it's a true juke and not a sidestep. Here's why. So you might be thinking, I'm going to leave in Sword Supply shares. It's good against Gristlebrand. That's fine. But Brian, I would bet money that you board out uh, Prismatic Ending versus Reanimator. And that's the card that people would normally use to answer that Xanid Swarm. So now the Xanid Swarms are more effective because if they're using Sword Supply shares on a bug, you know, that Archon of Cruelty or you know, Gristlebrand or whatever gets to stick around. Yeah, that is that is a good step in the right direction. Uh, generally, depending on how many cards I'm bringing in, I will cut Prismatic Ending first, like before anything else. That's the first card out of my deck. And then I'm probably shaving Plows too, like leaving like two in to dig for in case they stick an Archon or a, uh, a Sarah's Emissary, like one of the like plowing Grizzlebrand doesn't really work. They just draw 14 in response and reanimate two more creatures. But all the other creatures in the deck are great targets for plow. But my primary objective is to stop those things from being in play. So I probably don't have many plows in the first place. And if you get me to point one at a Xantid Swarm, then that was an effective use of your resources. That one by you. That one by you. That's right. And the thing you said about seeing underground sea game once leaving in your pyroblast or even bringing in more that's just heads up legacy play uh i actually have a coaching client who joined my patreon and started getting coaching from me because i played him on camera and he just showed me a he just killed me with like omniscience in game one and i was like i saw black mana i'm gonna bring in all my graveyard hate and then I wiped him out as a reanimator deck in game two after not seeing anything reanimator related game one except black sources and he was like, he messaged me and was like, I have a lot to learn and you're the one to teach me after seeing that happen. And like that can, that's, that's just like part of getting your reps and really understanding the format. And another thing I want to say is every time I play against Reanimator on camera, I board out all my prismatic endings and I say, these don't do anything in the matchup. And then invariably some number of people in the comments say, you can hit animate dead with that. And it's like, okay, uh, let's, let's talk about, since we're talking about like plans and sideboarding and stuff, like, let's talk about what doing anything is like, literally, does it do anything? Yeah, I guess. Technically, does it do anything that's going to result in a game win? No. If your prismatic ending, if your plan is to sorcery speed, prismatic ending, someone's animate dead that has already put some creature into play that has gained some value of some kind you're already signing up to lose compared to a card in your sideboard, like surgical extraction or fluster storm or veil of summer. How are you going to look me in the eye and tell me that prismatic ending belongs in the deck? Uh, just have, have some awareness of like what, what cards actually do and, and if they do enough to deserve a spot in your deck. Cause usually magic is a complicated game and you can usually find some situation where a card does something but uh, we're, we're talking about decks switching their plan completely to make your main plan already bad. Uh, really make sure that 
every card in your deck is doing doing as much as it can be because your opponent is trying to make them invalid already and leaving cards with uh that are mostly useless in is a punt so just don't do that i've played a lot of both top miracles and post top miracles i would board out all of my white cards literally all of them terminus swords everything and brian for the reason that you're talking about is yes those cards have functions but if you let gristlebrand or whatever resolve there's a good chance you're getting buried anyway and having a swords in your hand doesn't really achieve what you're looking for so i can't imagine leaving in the sorcery speed version to hit an enchantment to put that creature back in the graveyard to be reanimated is what we want to be doing right here. it's one third of the reanimation spells in the deck and you have to completely dodge the draw 14 into unmask you three times that's going to happen or the follow-up archon that shreds your hand or whatever the hell yeah, just yeah not not worth the conversation so something that we've talked about a couple times in this episode is these blue decks being able to dig towards whatever niche answer they need, you know, with your brainstorms, your ponders, your expressive iterations, all of that stuff. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you have to have an answer to every single thing in your deck for every single post sideboard game. You will often gain percentages by saying, I'm going to ignore X happening because stopping why is so much more important. Phil, you should tell that to my YouTube uh, comment section. Uh, people love building wishboards with literally answers to everything. And uh, in Legacy, we've actually like come up with a term for it, and it's like the 7% rule, where every card in your sideboard is worth roughly 7%. Uh, that's just how it works. And if it's going to be useful, you need it to be you know, a card that you would use 7% of the time at least. So having a wish target that answers enchantments, how often are you using that? Is it 7%? If not, cut it. And that's just an easy way of looking at if your cyborg space is effective. So a lot of the time I'll look at something like MTG Goldfish, and if I see that Enchantress is 0.01% of the metagame, maybe I'll leave that Tranquility at home, for example. Yeah, Karn the Great Creator Players, I'm looking at you for this one. I have played so, so many donation deck lists where there are all these like super niche artifact cards that I might want one in every 100 games. And will they win me that game if I am in that spot? Unquestionably. But of the cards in the wishboard, what are you actually getting? Your Liquid Metal Coating, your Mycosynth Lattice, your Ensnaring Bridge and maybe one other target every once in a like while. Like a Tormod script for those those high-pressure yep. situations or when you need to loop an earlier thing. And since we're talking about wishboards, th those aren't free. Like, they don't just poof out of the Aether. Like, these are cards that are not in your sideboard now because they're in wishboards. Like, it is, like, another, like, Flusterstorm or, like... Uh, duress or like another brazen borrower in a card deck like are you're gonna get more mileage out of a card like that than you are out of that niche wish target that comes up one in 100 games because brazen borrower you're gonna bring that in in like 95 out of 100 games i'm not trying to make fun of the individual here but uh last week i recorded glittering neoform in pioneer so i'm going to cast glittering wish and it turns out that there's a green white hybrid lay of the land and you can go get a land out of your a basic land out of your deck. I'm sorry, it doesn't have to be basic. It just has to be a basic land type. And they're like, yeah, this way you can get you can guarantee your third land for Eldritch Evolution. Sure, that's something you can do. But now you're playing Lay of the Land or an equivalent in your sideboard, and you're spending two turns to go find your third mana. How often in even a thousand games of Magic is that going to come up? And I think that it's so easy to just look at cards that are possibilities instead of being a little bit more realistic about this sideboard space. I would add a land or two to my deck before I made that a thing in my sideboard. Just if if hitting your third land drop is a problem, solve that in your mana base, not in your, your wishboard. Uh, I recently, I don't know when this is going to be up and I'm not going to step on Bryant's hustle too much, but I was interviewed for an article coming up on the epicstorm.com through the looking glass. And uh, it was... Uh, questions about being an Uro pile versus the Epic Storm, basically. And one of the questions was, how do you prepare in your sideboard for the Epic Storm and other combo decks? 
And my answer was basically like, I try to bake it into my main deck with endurances and dress downs. And otherwise I don't like, uh, a deck has to be worth it. The matchup has to be bad enough that your cards don't touch it on their own. And it has to be prevalent enough that it's worth that, you know, 7% of your sideboard and like a card like collector roof, which gets the Epic storm while also getting lands, death and taxes, eight cast, etc., across the board. Heck yeah, let's do it. Am I putting mind break trap in my blue control deck? 0%. Like that's just not going to happen. Uh, so really maximizing those sideboard spots and we're, we're kind of far afield. We went from jukes to transformational sideboards into how to build a sideboard, but I think we're still, uh, I'm going to start reeling it in. If you're going to try to juke or transform, that juke or transformation needs to be worth whatever percentage you're losing by not having a sideboard. That actually just furthers your plan. And the more slots your juke takes, the more you are taking away from the average matchup or any matchup where you don't use the juke. So for example, if you are a blue cantrip deck uh, like Doomsday and you can play two cards as your juke, two mentors, you know, two two doomsdays to some big enchantment that is going to dodge most removal spells and you can just do that at the cost of two cards that's totally fine and great if your juke is like eight cards and it's four leyline of the void for helm of obedience that comes at a much higher cost would you have run the four leylines anyway yeah sure would you have run four helms without wanting to do the juke no I would actually like to say I think eight is relatively small, uh, and I know that may oh. not be a popular opinion, but when you look at a lot of jukes, people board 13 cards sometimes and then leave like two flex answers. They're like, oh, I'll run two brazen borrowers in those slots to be like, if I have to force through my main plan, that will be the sideboard plan. Otherwise, I'll board these other 13. So when you look at a deck like Black Red Reanimator, for example, they often bring in four six answers to things like leyline of the void or other various graveyard hate where if they board into something like the witherbloom combo it's eight cards in my opinion it's pretty compact and the the a lot of people board out things like lightning bolt against reanimator because it, it doesn't really achieve anything meaningful unless it's exactly killing the opponent so a lot of that small ball removal isaac's third deck it dodges graveyard hate it is eight cards but i do think that the witherbloom combo is about it's one of my favorite jukes in all of legacy i feel like it's small and compact and i love it yeah and there is also overlap to jukes if your main deck can tutor like that storm deck with the leyline helm that got me they might only have one helm and they're playing four leylines for the decks that are faster than them anyway and they're an infernal tutor lines eye diamond deck uh, they they might just have the one helm in there uh, and and they just happen to rip it in my game it doesn't have to be an eight card juke if you can go look for it it's worth noting it might be their answer to veil of summer yeah sure uh it, it's just cool in general uh it, it slowed down my my graveyard stuff and then it randomly killed me in a spot where i didn't think i could die all right folks do we have anything else we want to say about transformational sideboards sideboard jukes sideboarding our love letters to karn the great creator or anything like well that <laughs> sorry, I just peeked in my mouth a little bit, Phil. Uh, sorry, uh, didn't mean to. Uh, I, I would like to uh, repeat a point that Sam Black made in an article in, in back in the ancient times. I think it was like the 1800s when I read this, but it still is something I think about. And he wrote in the article that when you're presenting a deck in game two and game three, you're presenting a deck like you are building a deck out of a pool of 75 cards available to you to play magic with the best 60 of those. And his point was you wouldn't submit a 60 card deck in game one. Like if you were just building a deck with no sideboard for casual play or whatever, you wouldn't play like three ponder, three swords to plowshares, three this, three that. You would probably have four of all your best cards. And thinking about your plan and your sideboard map versus just like doing the skim thing, like I'm bringing in four cards and I'll just take out one of each of these. Like you should really figure out what your sideboard needs to be pointed at and what your deck needs to do. If if Ponder is going to help you find your sideboard cards, don't cut a Ponder. If Ponder is going to get red blasted and not going to be fast enough, cut all your Ponders. Like uh, sort of present a deck. Think about it as a deck, not like 
some weird reactive thing that you're doing uh, on the back foot against what your opponent's doing. I was a skimmer for a long time, and one of my big level ups was just realizing that you don't have to do that, and you can just board out entire sections of your deck while or entire cards, like, just board out all of them. And it took me a long time to get there. Like, information today travels so much faster, but I had already been playing Magic for, like, 10 years before that clicked in my head, so take the advice. we were all skimmers. Uh, That's why this article stuck with me, because I was definitely in that, like, emerging from... I had already emerged from the kitchen table to the LGS, and I was then stepping from the LGS into regional events. And when I read this, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm a big bad skimmer. And lately... A lot of people have been asking me about Shark still because I've been playing it on a lot of events. And they're like, hey, are you going to write a sideboard guide for this? And here's a free one for the people who are not in my Patreon. Here's the sideboard guide. Every matchup is a plow matchup or a force matchup, and you cut the one that's bad. It's that easy. Is Force of Will good in the deck or is Swords of Pleasure good in the deck? Because rarely are both good. And bring in, there's four cards you could cut right away. Eight or more if you also cut the endings. And there's your sideboard map. While we're still on the subject of jukes, one thing that happens a lot at local game stores is players will sideboard, and while they're boarding, they'll go, okay, I want to bring in these cards, and they'll lay them down in front of them. Don't let your opponent know how many cards you're bringing in. If you're bringing in 10 cards, I know you're juking. So if you're going to be playing a deck that does this, do the old shuffle 15 in, shuffle 15 out. Even if you're not going to sideboard, don't give your opponent the information. Try to be as anonymous as possible. With the caveat here, don't fuck around with shuffling all 15 cards unless you know what your plan is and what you're taking out already, because you might leave in or take out an important piece. I have absolutely seen people go for the 15 card, shuffle it all in, make a big show of it, and then like cast an Infernal Tutor and go like, oh shit, I boarded that out on accident. I heard about some dummy who forgot to take his Pyrene of the Abyss out of his deck for game three and then accidentally cast it turn one in sanctioned play when it was supposed to be in the sideboard. Isn't that I wonder crazy? who that was. Yeah. <laughs> what sicko would get away with that? Uh, but yeah, uh, protecting information is good too. Uh, like tournament mannerisms and stuff. I feel like we've covered a lot of that and maybe it's another episode someday. But yeah, if if somebody just lays down four cards... I will probably be predicting like uh, what four cards do I think Red Prison is going to bring in against my Oro deck. It's probably like some number of Red Blast and Unlicensed Hearse, and I will react to the fact that you're doing that. Uh, just just hide that information. And if you're not going to sideboard, pretend you're going to sideboard. Uh, free, if I do ever split, like board out two of the plows and or whatever, I will sideboard out one of the plows for one of the plows going from game two into game three and just like i will i'll do it face up on the table like not cards face up but like make it clear that a card has left my deck and another card has come in just just it's free move stuff around don't give your opponent the knowledge that they're playing it's the same 60 cards again so one other thing on sideboarding here like going back to the sam black idea and like presenting a cohesive deck for game two and game three if you write a sideboard plan you will probably figure out what matchups you do not have a cohesive plan for. So for example, I recently played a very questionable mono-red sneak attack deck that had some extra spice in it. And the deck did not have enough sideboard cards in it for rounds where you needed it to board out both Chalice of the Void and Trinisphere for one reason or another. And so I went... Okay, this is going to sound crazy, but to fill my slots here, I have to play a Leyline of the Void in this random matchup that does nothing to do with the graveyard so that I just have one more colored card I can imprint on a Chrome Box. Because, like, that was the point that I was at. My sideboard plan for the matchup was just so bad. Yeah, this is extremely prevalent in Vintage, where main decks contain, like, Flusterstorm and Pyroblast in large numbers, and sometimes you play against Shops which has no spells and no blue spells, like no non-creature spells, no non-permanent spells. And you have to get your six Pyroblast and Flusterstorms out of your deck, period, because they're blank-ass cardboard. So you need at least six cards for shops. And then Dredge usually follows similar rules. Like there's cards that are stone dead against Dredge, but you need them in the main deck for the blue mirrors. And you need enough cards to get them out and real cards in, which 
in a lot of ways, vintage, even though it's like the biggest and most complicated format, has the cleanest, most easy sideboards because it's very clear there are seven cards for dredge, seven cards for shops, and one flex slot for blue mirrors. And there are seven cards in my deck that need to leave the deck when I'm playing against non-blue mirrors. Brian, I'm glad you mentioned the one flex spot for blue decks. I was actually going to do that because every blue deck that I've ever played has one Hercules recall and you're like, oh, I just have to get that out of my deck. I need to board in uh, another foster or whatever. But the last time I played vintage, I was like, oh, actually, am I supposed to leave this in? They're a Nurse's Saga deck. And now I'm not even sure if you need the cyborg slot where you, you know, board out the Hercules. Like maybe you just leave that in moving forward and now you gain an extra cyborg slot for shops. Yeah, I mean, Herx is one of those cards that even fair decks have Urza Saga, and if your deck does anything with uh, with Moxen, Hercules Recall can be a Dark Ritual. You just float four Herx for two, replay your four Moxen. Now you have six. Like there, there's cards like Herx that that do more work, but like a Flusterstorm against Shops, uh, that's what I'm talking about. All right, All folks. Right, so I believe that Phil wanted to talk about Guacamole Goblin. Oh, that's that's what we're doing, huh? All right. So it's time for Unfinity. So in case you haven't seen these cards floating around, Unfinity is the next air quotes silver bordered set. The 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 next like fake magic set with fun gimmicks that is very much meant to be a play experience rather than creating tournament legal cards. But it's different this time around because the previous silver border is now gone. These cards are black bordered and a portion of them are now tournament legal. The ones that have sort of the holographic acorn at the bottom are fake magic cards that you can't play in things like legacy tournaments. And the ones that have the regular foil holographic thing at the bottom are indeed legacy legal. Or if they have nothing, the only the rares have the oval hollow stamp a common or uncommon without an acorn is legal the acorn being illegal is the only like for sure statement i have a question for the two judges here let's say that they've spoiled a storm crow token in this set and hypothetically they make crow storm a legacy legal card am i allowed to play my silver bordered crow storm yes this is already established with steam flogger boss or I guess they just printed Steam Flogger Boss as a Black Border card in the sil- otherwise Silver Border set. So maybe it's not established. But a- if a version of a card is legal, you can play any version. That's just magic rules. Okay. I was also, just Bryant, we've talked about this off camera several times. You're not getting Crow Storm. They already spoiled the card. It's an acorn and it's not Crow Storm. Oh, I didn't. Well, the whole set is spoiled. It has been for a week. I was face full of muscles when you told me this. I wasn't listening. <laughs> Look, it is literally impossible to keep up with all of the magic spoilers now. Like, there has been this just, like, absolutely crazy run of, like, Unfinity, the uh, the EDH 40k Warhammer decks, and now the, the Magic 30 stuff is starting, the Brothers War is starting. It is a blur. Agreed. Uh, it is preposterous, and Brothers War, we got, like, five or six cards of that and then surprise there's also transformer cards in the brothers war and then surprise also here is uh a year's worth of promos that includes a thousand dollar four packs of fake proxy beta uh yeah it's been a big it's been a busy time for for people to keep up with magic products but we're not talking about any of that today we we are talking about infinity let's get into the cards we've identified four cards that could see eternal play that are legal. And uh, before we get into this rebel, the member of the commander advisor group who is awesome and worth a follow on Twitter at sun rebel, S O N rebel. She took, she cracked a box of infinity and put the legal cards in a stack and the acorn cards in a stack. And it looks like about two thirds of the box is legal. Like the ratio is skewed towards tournament legality. Uh, That said, not many of them pass the bar of playability, and we've identified four of those that we think are worth at least mentioning. The first one is Embiggen. It's one mana green instant. Until end of turn, target non-brushwag creature gets plus one, plus one for each super type, card type, and subtype it has. So non-brushwag is a funny way to say this can't target changelings, because changelings would have just gotten plus 500 or whatever. Uh, but this does do big things 
uh, embigged things on certain creatures, most notably infect creatures. Ink Moth Nexus is a artifact creature land Phyrexian Ink Moth. So this is just like plus five, plus five for one. Did I count that correctly? Yes. And for the other creatures in the deck, it's plus four, plus four. Right. Because they all have two creature types and a, and card types. I, and it's like kind of another another berserk that doesn't take any setup. Uh, I don't know if this is what Infect needs. There's enough like hexproof spells like Vines of Vestwood and the the plus two, plus two and hexproof version. Like Blossoming all, Calm. Yeah, Blossoming Calm. Or Blossoming Calm's a white card, isn't it? Isn't that the white card with rebound? Isn't that the green one? It, it is Blossoming something. Blossoming Defense. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, Blossoming Calm is the white one. Oh, yeah. no. Uh, checkmate, nerds. I didn't know the yeah, name bl- at all. Blossoming Defense. Yeah, Blossoming that Defense. Okay. Yeah, like, I, I feel like Infect is less about size. Like, there's tons of size already in the pump spells that exist, and it's now about protecting the creatures more. But in Biggin, undeniable, this is most of a Become Immense without using your graveyard or requiring any setup. This would probably at least replace Become Immense, but... It's not doing anything that Infect doesn't already have access to. Yeah, this is a great case of the power level being there, but Infect itself maybe not being a premier strategy. Like small creature, like inexpensive creatures became a lot less good once the control decks had access to Source of Plowshares and Prismatic Endings in game one. Could be a nice budget option for what it's worth. I mean, I haven't checked on Berserk in a while, but last time I knew they were still a little over 100, perhaps... uh... You know, you just pull one out of your pack. You can run that until you get the full thing. I think Berserk got a few reprints. The cheapest version appears to be $18 from a secret what? layer drop. And there's a conspiracy version for 30 from the vaults 40. And then you get up into like the alphabet unlimited ones that are hundreds. Yeah, Berserk's pretty affordable, but this card will be cheaper. It's a common from a set that is likely to be widely opened and nobody's going to want the cards once they're open. I'll be honest, the last time I looked at a one green uh, instant, it was Veil of Summer, so my apologies. Yep, only have eyes for one. Let's go next into Blank Goblin. This is the one that I think has the most buzz around it, and people will be most likely to try. The Blank is where you put a sticker, and one of the possible stickers you can put on is Mind Goblin, which makes for a funny internet joke. So I'm just going to call this Mind Goblin in conversation forever. I think that's where the community is at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where R&D was at when they put mind in the sticker pool uh they knew okay so mind goblin two and a red two two when it enters the battlefield put a sticker on it and then you get one red mana for each unique vowel in the name of this card so the way stickers work is you need to have a bring a deck with at least 10 sticker sheets in it 10 unique sticker sheets and at the start of the game you shuffle them up and get three and those are your sticker sheets for the game And then if anything says put a sticker on, you pull it off your available sticker sheet for this game. The community has done the math. Uh, Peter Vanderham made a a whole chart about it. Mind Goblin, if you build your sticker deck correctly, is guaranteed to at least net one mana. Uh, You'll get four mana out of your three investment. 70% of the time you get five mana and like 20 or 30% of the time you get six. So this is a ritual. Bryant, you're the expert here. Uh, what are we going to do? Is the community interested in a two and a red two, two that is makes at least one mana when you cast it for legacy? There's been some chatter about whether or not this is good enough for goblins, because theoretically it allows you to just turbo into Muxus very, very easily. There's right. been some talk about like, well, do you play iron crag feet, whatever? I don't think that's really viable in goblins and we haven't seen it for a reason. So this being on tribal theme makes it a little bit more interesting. You might want to ask someone like Eli Goings if that's actually good enough. I'd be surprised if it was, but it's something at least fun to try for a, a stream or a video or whatever. Where I've heard more chatters and Popper because this thing is Seething Song on average. 70% of the time it's at least Seething Song. But it's Seething Song that leaves a body behind for, what is it called? The one black and a colorless Calling and black. the week? No. Nope. Deadly Dispute. There we go. So it leaves sure. a body behind for Deadly Dispute. And that is interesting to me, but I don't know if 
it's still worth running seething song like right now the popper combo decks don't play seething song so does the body push it over the edge i'll find out in a couple weeks right and uh the one big thing i saw was like cloudstone curio with grinning ignis in this which like does make infinite mana and storm also that seems like more of an edh thing than getting three fragile pieces together that each cost three onto a legacy board I do think this card is more applicable in stompy decks like uh, goblins, uh, not really a stompy deck, but but you said it. it's a deck that would benefit from a burst of mana and also has other synergies with this thing being a goblin. Uh, I don't know if Red Prison wants this. Probably not there, but they are also kind of a goblin deck that that wants mana sometimes. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't really see this spawning a new combo archetype or slotting into existing ones, but uh, maybe like mono red sneak attack. Uh, this would be a sweet one to sneak attack in. That gets you a lot of mana if you're already sneaking around. Uh, but at that point, why don't you put in your Emrakul? I, I could see this on the fringe. Anything that makes more mana than it costs is worth a talk in Eternal Formats, but I don't really see it breaking anything. Except maybe Magic Online, if they can even code for this. Uh-huh. All right, a quick note on goblins. I had a discussion with someone the other day that basically said, yeah, when we were tracking our data the Muxus wins actually accounted for the lowest percentage of the wins versus just like getting in the red zone and beating or like executing some sort of sacrifice bait board state that actually killed the opponent. So while I conceptually really love the idea of like turbo Muxus and like that scratches a certain itch for me, it turns out data wise that like the Muxus kills weren't happening as often as people might expect they were right and i played goblins recently and eli was really generous sharing information with me from behind his patreon walls and one of them is you sideboard into so many non-goblins these days that muxus and ringleader start getting cut post-board that's like not even the plan because they're not reliable and i thought that was really interesting i would not have figured that out myself one thing i would like to know is Sometimes we, not even legacy players, just deck builders, players, whatever, new cards come out. And the easiest way to think about a new card is what does this go into? Instead of thinking, what can I change about my deck to maximize the potential of this card? And I'm not saying that Turbo Muxus is the bee's knees or anything, but what if, you know, the four Mine Goblin, Guacamole Goblin into four Muxus build actually is decent, but no one's testing it because we've all decided that the Muxus win percentage is too low. So, I mean, I had this issue when, when Wishclaw Talisman came out. I was like, I don't know, a three-mana tutor, I could just play Grim Tutor and not give my opponent a tutor. And it didn't click for another month and a half in my head that I could just fundamentally change the deck. So I just want to make note that perhaps there's something there. I have complete confidence in the Goblin community that they will try everything. They usually do. That is a busy community, not afraid to try crazy stuff. All right, this thing is uh, breaking an hour already. Let's get through these last two cards real quick. Clown Car is the next one. Phil Blackman's vehicle. Uh, yes. What it do? What it do, baby? Yeah, yo, what do you know? Okay. Clown Car is an X mana 1-1. One, one. Uh, just colorless X, a single X. When Clown Car enters the battlefield, roll X six-sided dice. For each odd result, create a 1-1 one, one clown robot artifact creature token. For each even result, put a plus one counter on Clown Car. And it has crew two. It is a vehicle, if I didn't say that. On average, uh, you will get a plus one counter on your thing and a creature that can crew it for each every two X, two X is. This is in that like walking ballista kind of space. Uh, it's really good with affinity because walking ballista, no matter how much you put into it, still only makes one artifact. But you could like X equals three this thing, end up with two or three artifacts for thought cast and thought monitors on a subsequent turn. This is worse than Walking Ballista if you have infinite mana, because Ballista just kills your opponent. If you are locked under a Null Rat effect, this one's much better, because you get to go wide with a bunch of little dinguses, and just ignore the, the vehicle. It can't be crewed, but attack with the creatures. This one's kind of interesting, and we'll probably see it kicking around. The thing that I saw most discussed about this is, if I have infinite mana, how are we going to resolve this? And I think the answer is like pretty obviously, just take out your phone. There's random number generation apps or like coin flip apps. Just type one billion into your coin flip app and, and see how many of each thing you get. Uh, that That's not really controversial. I think that's pretty easy. I even use those for CDH. Like you play webcam, you have 15 cards in hand, and you cast gamble. 
Random number generator, baby. Easiest thing you can do. Yep, absolutely. We have the technology. Uh, Phil, you're our, our robot homie. Do you want to say anything I didn't say about this card? Yeah, don't view this as a card in a combo deck. View this as a mana outlet in your deck that has lands that can produce two or three mana at the same time. Especially if you care about the number of artifacts in play, say for like a nettle cyst type card, a cranial plating type card, this can be relatively appealing. Okay, last card. And uh, I know Brian has thoughts about this one. This is pair o dice lost. The the pun being it is a pair of dice. Uh, three green green instant. So five mana instant. Roll two six sided dice. Return any number of cards with total mana value X or less from your graveyard to your hand, where X is the total of those results. Exile paradise lost. So uh, bottom basement, you get back any number of cards that have total mana value two, which is like all your Lotus petals, all your LEDs and infernal tutor and top end 12 mana, uh, a deck built for that could probably just pick its whole graveyard up. Brian, what do we think? The storm discord has been brewing a lot with this card, mostly in ant. There have been some dedicated Paro dice lost decks as well, but a lot of people are looking at this as a possible past and flames replacement. So that way you can go pure bug and that way you get a better mana base out of the ant deck. You can play an extra basic or two. You don't have to play the couple of red sources, which is nice. But then there's a lot of people that are looking at it as an ad nauseum alternative, which is really tough because if you're cutting ad nauseum, you now have two engines in your deck that are both graveyard dependent, which is already a weakness of the deck. So you're either cutting ad nauseum or you're replacing past in flames. And if you're replacing past in flames, you don't get that extra kickback. So you don't get the flash it back. That said, force and negation sort of changed the game there. What are you actually losing? I guess one nice aspect is we're in an era where Hydroblast has been picking up. Paradise Lost has nothing to blast it with, which is kind of cute. Uh, I have been seeing that come up as a talking point. So um, it's interesting. I'm probably going to try to record a dedicated Paradise Lost video. Uh, but will it see play? I remain skeptical in the long term. If someone breaks it, my guess is that it's Jax. Yeah, uh, whatever Jax is doing, uh, just just watch that Twitter feed. Um, Phil, changing directions to more of your wheelhouse, and, and I guess mine, but I associate you with this sort of nonsense. How about like uh, Cheerios or some some nonsense where this is like the top end rather than a dedicated storm deck? Like this is something you can glimpse of nature into if you have like mana floating and need to gas up the tank. This seems like kind of more a place we would see something like that. Not that those decks are great, but you yeah, know. The, the, sh the short version here is that in order to make that work, you need Gaia's Cradle in your Cheerios type deck, and you also need to have a bunch of artifacts in play already. And if you have the big mana and you have the zero drops in play already, like you're probably already doing fine. So that feels like win more or clunky to me because i have trouble casting two mana cards in, the, in those sorts of decks a lot of times just because like the mana doesn't work out super well after you like commit to an initial glimpse or two yeah so th I don't, those I don't decks are it. those decks are for sure suspicious in their execution and you'd probably need a sack outlet like uh, a phyrexian or ashnod's altar to turn your your mem knights into two mana and then that mana casts paradise lost and gets back all your mem knights and yeah, it sounds like a mess, but you know someone's going to send it into one of us. Oh, absolutely. And I'll look forward to playing it. It will be very fun. Those decks are always fun. They're always bad, but always fun. For I sure. was a part of an interesting conversation over the weekend about how a lot of these cards built for fun formats. So uh, on whatever limited CDH, EDH, whatever, and how they impact legacy because all these cards are added to the legacy card pool for better or for worse, you know, I don't have strong opinions, but the idea that a lot of these cards are now random. So we're looking at maddening hex paradise lost and how we're adding dice rolling into competitive nature of magic, which it's always sort of been there, but you have to look at people potentially not being honest with their dice rolls. 
maybe not getting a full die roll in on their maddening hex, you know, just dropping it on the table, Paradise Lost, maybe they really need to return six and you have to watch them, that sort of thing. So I do think that sometimes the random nature needs to be enforced. I just want to make note of that, I guess. Yeah, keep your opponents honest, uh, make it clear, or like, uh, let your opponent roll for maddening, your maddening hex or whatever, like, if it's their card you roll, or, I I don't know, uh, I guess you could cheat too, but you probably didn't practice cheating at home the way, I, I, I don't know, these sort of things always. If you hold the die up high enough and shake it a couple times in a close hand, it's going to be random unless it's literally like a weighted die. So uh, just keep your opponent honest about that. Um, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, I think we, we said everything we need to say about Infinity. It's been on our uh, auxiliary topic if we need it for the last three weeks and we finally did it. And uh, the sky is not falling. Magic is fine. It's going to be cool. You probably won't see these cards and it won't ruin anything if you do. 